Thanks to Novo for supporting Future Hindsight. Novo is powerfully simple business checking. You're making something new with your business. And to support you, Novo built a new kind of business checking. Get your free business banking account in just 10 minutes at novo.co slash hopeful. Welcome to Future Hindsight, a podcast that takes big ideas about civic life and democracy and turns them into action items for you and me. I'm Mila Atmos. We're continuing our focus on voting this week. It's a theme that's going to run through a lot of our episodes this year. It's a midterm year, and it's another important and unsettling year for voting rights and American democracy. I think I've mentioned before that I'm what you might call a committed voter. I will trudge through the rain to vote in pretty small local races. But one of the biggest local races of them all is the New York City mayoral election. And last year's field of candidates almost had me, the very committed voter, totally overwhelmed. I think it was like 22 candidates. It was a huge field. I couldn't figure out who to vote for, but thankfully, a friend of mine sent me a link to an online questionnaire. It was from the local news site, thecity.org. It promised to match me with my ideal candidate. I mean, the quiz was not short. It was, in fact, super long, but I stuck with it. And in the end, it pointed me to someone I had never heard of. Art Chang was the candidate who most closely matched up with my views and priorities. Who's he? I went to his website and I saw he has office hours. What? In the middle of a pandemic, he was making himself available in a way that felt fresh and new. So I signed up and that's how I met Art Chang for the first time in his Zoom office hours. And today I'm thrilled to have him on the podcast in real life sitting across from me. Art's going to give us the inside scoop on what it's like to run for office if you're not a professional politician, and hopefully he'll share some of what he's learned running for mayor to help those of us who might be thinking about running, or for us voters who'd like to know more about how the sausage gets made. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. I'm so delighted to be here. So I thought I would start with a little bit of psychotherapy. Tell me a little bit about your childhood. Wait, just I'm just kidding, actually. But <laughs> but seriously. Well, is that where it all begins? That's where it all begins. Well, so, you know, a lot of us see the things we want to change, and we don't necessarily throw our hat in the ring and run for the mayor of the city of New York, which is really one of the most powerful jobs in the United States. So tell me about the moment in your thoughts, in your thought process, when you decided, I think I'm going to run for mayor. Like, what happened? It wasn't actually a single moment, but it was a culmination of different facts that were all so extreme and so intense. And you can remember, you have to go back in your memory, what the pandemic was like, what it felt like. And remember that people couldn't get vaccines. There was a mask shortage. Kids couldn't go to school. There was remote learning. The economy collapsed. Chinatown nearly died. Um, thousands of people were dying. Right, so much so that the hospitals were overflowing. We had refrigerator trucks to hold the bodies. And so when you take yourself back to that period and then you look at what happened 
with the Black Lives Matter protests. When George Floyd was killed, was murdered by police officers in, in, in Minneapolis, people all around the country spontaneously got up and said, this is unacceptable. We can't have this way anymore. We demand change. And what was so thrilling about that moment was that it wasn't just black people. It wasn't just progressives. It was people of all ages, of all income brackets, of all religions, coming out spontaneously to join people in the street to protest the way that our country has gone and how wrong this all was. At that moment, I said, you know, our city isn't working. It's not working for anyone. That we have to have change. That maybe for once, New York City is ready for real change. And that's when I decided to run. I said, maybe I, who am a long shot candidate with zero name recognition, can somehow tell a story about how it's possible to fix the things in our city that need to be fixed to address the structural problems, the cyclical issues, and then to use it to think about how we move forward into the future instead of trying to recreate what happened in the past. You were actually going to tell me about your childhood. So tell me what makes you different as a child and your childhood that makes you think that you, even though you would be a long-shot candidate, could pull this off. Well, you know, I think everybody's childhoods really inform who they are. Sometimes you run away from it. Sometimes you embrace it. Sometimes it changes who you are. You know, I think I have the privilege of of being somebody who had a very unusual and challenging childhood, and that really shaped who I am and my worldview. My parents came to the United States from Korea separately. They didn't know each other um, in the 1950s to pursue their studies. They met. They got married. They had me. I was born in 1963 in Jim Crow Atlanta at a time when Asian immigration was illegal before the Civil Rights Act that said that all people are equal was passed. You know, in Atlanta at the time, you were either, you know, white or you were colored. And on my birth certificate, the race of the mother and the father were typed in white because they had no place for Koreans or Asians. And some kind clerk listened to my mother's protest and hand-crossed out on my birth certificate white and wrote over it Korean. And that's a very powerful image for the kind of the world that they were in and the world that they entered. I mean, can you imagine leaving your home halfway around the, the world and coming to a place where all of a sudden, not only do you not speak the language, not only do you look different, but actually the laws of the country do not really allow you to have fundamental rights. And so when I was four, we, we moved to Akron, Ohio, um, where we're the only family of color in our school. And I remember my mother making me watch the civil rights marches and say, this is important. You have to remember these people, and she was pointing to black people, are risking their lives so that you can have a better future. That was so deeply powerful, and it remained a very vivid picture for me, and especially because also the other context, in addition to you know, all the, the anti-Asian violence, which you know, it was just anti, 
people of color violence that I was experiencing in my school was also compounded by the fact that I, I lived in a domestic violence household. My mother was beaten regularly. And it called out all kinds of issues around race and class and, and the role of immigrants versus the police and the school system and all the structures that were meant supposedly to you know, protect me, but actually didn't protect me, didn't protect my mother, didn't protect us as a family. And I said to myself that this is not how the world should be. And from a very, very early age, I said, I am going to think about how to think about a different world, the world that I want to live in, a world where adults don't get to decide who's right just because they're older, but that I get to exercise my own capabilities and figuring out what to do, that adults aren't necessarily right, that the power structures aren't right, that I can figure it out and I need to forge my own path. Well, you said a lot of things here about how the system is not working and how it should, though, work for everyone. And one of the things that I've heard you say is that you wanted to deliver good governance. In fact, that if we don't deliver good governance, we erode our faith in democracy. So how would you define good governance? What does it look like to you? Well, in the 21st century, all policy is supported by technology. Technology allows things to be transparent. They allow things to be communicated in real time. They allow for a two-way communication, right? That if someone communicates to you, you have the ability to communicate back and express your point of view. That you're given an understanding of what these things mean so you're able to understand how they affect your lives. And governance, by the way, is not about telling you what to do but it is about creating a fair and equitable system that meets everybody where they are and delivers the things that they need the way that they need them when they need them. And we don't do that. In our country, our governance often works against you. And especially if you are poor or an immigrant, or a person of color, it works against you. So... You know, this leads me back to your office hours, actually. I think what was really remarkable about this is that you actually made direct contact with voters in a way that makes good governance legible, in a sense, you know, meeting people where they are. So what was your motivation in making yourself available in this way? I thought it was a powerful symbol, right? It was a time when I couldn't go out on the street and talk to people because we were in the throes of the pandemic. Um, people had no way to know who I was. And so I needed to convey to people a sense of who I am and to be someone who doesn't tell, but listens. Somebody who asks questions. And the important things that I hear are what people have to say, much more so than what I have to say. And then when I say something, I want to ensure that, that I speak from a point where I've heard other people and I can channel their pain and their frustration to be able to advance us even one tiny step forward. So then what did you hear in these sessions? Like what was top of mind for the people who came to your office hours? Oh, my God. The absence of direct contact from the government. If you were not a big company or even a mid-sized company, you got no immediate relief. If you were an artist, if you were 
LGBTQ. You got no direct relief. If you were a Chinatown merchant, you got no direct relief. And relief was months and months in coming. And it finally came, but it was very little. And it was late. And we look at the housing crisis and how that was accumulating and aggregating. Like People were going to debt for thousands or tens of thousands of dollars that they're never going to be able to repay. No solution for that. People were hungry. We had to stand up mutual aid societies to feed our own people. How wrong is that? We were not taking care of people, and we looked at society from these very, very kind of big groupings. But in fact, New York is a town of a thousand small towns. It's extremely fragmented. It always has been. So the role of government is to unify people, to unite people, to be able to work from the bottom up, to be able to meet people again where they are, and to understand all the different areas where they're vulnerable. So that when you begin to offer relief, whether it's relief to small businesses or relief to artists, that the websites work, that you don't have to jump through 15 hoops, that there aren't conflicting regulations, that you can smoothly and easily get the relief that you need to be able to carry on with your life for another day, week, month, until this pandemic is over. Yeah. So give me an example of what you think would have been a really easy solution during that crisis time in the beginning in meeting people where they are and making New York work for everyone. Well, the vaccine delivery, the mayor and the governor decided that they were going to focus delivery of vaccines to hospitals. But what about all the people who worked in the small health centers? What about all the people who worked in nursing homes? What about all these other people who worked in healthcare who were first in line to be vaccinated but could not get the vaccine because they were only being delivered to the large hospitals? There's something wrong about that picture. We live in the, again, the city that is so large, so geographically diverse. We have so many places. Why isn't there a system that actually says, here are all the places where we have health centers. Let's push it out to them first or push it out to them in conjunction with the big hospitals. And then there are multiple systems that didn't talk to each other, private systems and public systems. So it took a single human being right, Hugh Ma, right, Mr. TurboVax, to create TurboVax so that people had an easy way to find out where vaccines were available and to make appointments. What is TurboVax? TurboVax was a system that, at its core, tied together many systems that didn't talk to each other. And so if you wanted to go and find an appointment, you could tweet at TurboVax, you could go to TurboVax's website, and TurboVax would then ping all the different sites to find out where vaccines were available and just present it. Until then, there's no way to do that. There are stories I've heard of people who were calling for days for their grandparents who were unable to get vaccines, of elderly Asian people who didn't know how to read the websites because they were all in English who had to be helped to be able to get access to these things. And then the frustration of going from one to the other to the other to the other. And TurboVax, and literally in five days, he created this tool that solved problems for hundreds of thousands of New Yorkers. 
Thanks to Novo for supporting Future Hindsight. Fortune favors the bold, the strong, the brave. For your business to break out of anything holding you back, you need business checking as brave as you are. Introducing Novo Business Checking. Just because you're taking your business somewhere no one's ever gone before doesn't mean you have to go it alone. Get truly personalized and powerfully simple business checking with Novo. And unlike the traditional banking model, Novo has no minimum balances, no transaction limits, and no hidden fees. Instead of a one-size-fits-all approach, Novo is customized to your business to save you time and free up cash flow. With seamless integrations to Stripe, Shopify, QuickBooks Online, and more. It's so seamless that fans call Novo the Swiss army knife of checking accounts. Sign up for Novo for free and join the community of over 150,000 fearless small businesses who found the customizable business checking solution that admires their bravery. Sign up for your free business checking account right now at novo.co slash hopeful. Plus, Future Hindsight listeners get access to over $5,000 in perks and discounts. Go to novo.co slash hopeful to sign up for free. Novo.co slash hopeful. Novo Platform Inc. is a fintech, not a bank. Banking services provided by Middlesex Federal Savings FA. Member FDIC. Terms and conditions apply. What was the biggest lesson that you learned from your race for mayor? Like, what was the most surprising thing that you learned from running and campaigning? I was surprised, actually, at how much I loved it. Oh, yeah? Tell me about that. When you run for office, you have a platform. So I could go to anybody on the street and say, Hi, I'm Art Chang. I'm running for mayor. Who are you? Where do you live? And I'd love to hear what, you, what you're thinking right now. And I could go talk to anybody. And 99 times out of 100, people were happy to talk. Sometimes they were a little dismissive at the beginning, but then they were able to talk. And I love that. I love talking to strangers. I love feeling the connection with ordinary people and hearing their stories. And then very quickly, the thing that I got so often was kind of the pain, the injustice, the unfairness. And it didn't really matter what, what mode of life you came from, whether you are wealthy, whether you were a, a mom or a dad, or whether you had just come out of prison or homeless, because I talked to those folks, talked to everybody. But you had the ability to talk to people and test whether you can actually connect with them. And that's a powerful feeling. It made me feel much more confident in myself. It made me love New York even more. It made me even want to become mayor even more. But it was really a phenomenal experience, and I highly recommend that for anyone who is not shy about talking to strangers. That's terrific. Well, you were talking about sort of the injustice and unfairness, and in some ways I feel like this is exactly how New York is. And when we talk about voting and elections, it's not really, quote-unquote, democratic. I mean, New York City is a big blue city uh, where the primary is really the main horse race, and very often the general election is a foregone conclusion. So it's a big de-democratic city with a big democracy problem, in fact. So what was like the turnout and how do you make sense of that, especially now that you've spoken to people on the street and you get a better sense of like 
do those people actually come out and vote, the people who talk to you? Or what is the story that you have gleaned from your own experience? The turnout in New York City has historically been very low. I mean, as you know, I was on the city's campaign finance board for nine years. I was the first chair of the Voter Assistance Advisory Committee. I was the first Asian, actually, and only Asian to be appointed to that board. You know, New York has historically been a low voter turnout place. Typically, if you get in the high teens percentage turnout in the primaries on off years, that's a reasonably good year. Getting into the 20s is considered to be, you know, better. And then maybe on a presidential year, you might get up into the 30s or even maybe crack 40. But it's very unusual to do that. My observation from talking to people was that the turnout may not have reflected people's interest in the election. People get very jaded, right? They may talk to a a politician. They may take the, the city... Um, survey and feel excited momentarily, but their lives are so busy and they have so many other issues. And they go, well, what does my one vote really matter in a city that's this big? And by the way, this is not just a New York problem. This is an everywhere problem. So I don't want to blame New Yorkers for poor turnout, but there's something fundamentally wrong with our democracy when people do not turn out to choose the people who are going to deliver government to them. Yeah, that's for sure true. I think there's also a disconnect when it comes to mayoral elections. I think people don't understand how much power this person has over your life in New York City. So it turns out that the turnout in the November election, so in the general, was 23.2%. So that's actually high, right, from what you were just saying. So if you were in charge of the system, if you were to be able to change the system to like the next mayor, what would you change? There is no simple solution. Because Democracy is not a simple idea. We throw that term around willy-nilly without actually knowing whether we understand what it means. And when students don't have civics in school in a deep and fundamental way, there's no way for people to really understand what an election is about, what the roles of the people they're electing you know, are, are all about, what their powers are, and how they're going to affect you. So when you have that kind of disconnect... It is extraordinarily difficult for people to be engaged. And I, I just look at myself and, you know, there were lots of challenging issues about growing up in Ohio. But Ohio, when I was there, had an amazing education system. By the time I graduated from eighth grade, I had read the state's constitution, the federal constitution. I had read the Declaration of Independence. I knew the architecture of the federal government and the cabinet secretaries, and how they're appointed, and what they did, and what their relationship was between the president and, 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 and Congress and the Supreme Court. And I understood how that was reflected in the state of Ohio. Now, when you have that kind of understanding, you are equipped to go forward and actually understand what these different roles do. And so you have this sort of architecture that allows you to have insights at a much smaller, and much more pragmatic level. And by the way, there are other little things too that I think may be surprising to people. The fact that we don't have arts education undermines our democracy. Or the fact that we don't have shop or home ec in school undermines our democracy. And by that, I mean... When you actually work with something in your hands, when you work with other people to create something, you have 
the sense that you are actually know how to make something. You know how to figure out a problem. You know how to take something which is abstract and turn it into some concrete reality. And you might fail, but you know that you can pick up and do it over again. So without things like the arts and, and shop and home ec, it's very hard for people to get that intrinsic deep understanding inside of themselves that they can, that they're capable, that they will. And then when you leave out the education about civics, is it any wonder that people don't feel capable, that they don't feel like the politicians are responsive? They don't really have an understanding of how the levers of power actually work. I think it all comes down to some very fundamental things that are very philosophical about who we are and, and how we want to live our lives as, as Americans in this democracy, the democracy that we want to define for ourselves. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think the erosion of civics education in the current age, so when you grew up, it was still alive and well, which is why I think among other reasons, older voters are more engaged because they do understand better. So, well, I wanted to talk to you about ranked choice voting because this is kind of related, right? It's a type of voting reform. But I have to tell you that as a person who is a very engaged voter, <laughs> right? Uh, I mean, I host a civic engagement podcast, but I was totally flummoxed. I was very confused. So doesn't a confusing system disenfranchise voters in a way? Yes, and this is one of those things that was not going to be solved overnight. But the overall impetus for doing this, I think, came from all the right reasons. It's not a finished project. I think there's room for improvement. But the people who are responsible for promoting this have to see the necessity for improvement. And then back to the idea of, of enfranchisement, then voters have to advocate for improvement of one type or another. So we'll see where this goes. But I will say this, that if we keep going with this ranked choice system, eventually the 23% or 28% of people who do vote will begin to understand what it is and the power of it. Ah, okay. Well, tell me about that. What is the power of ranked choice voting? The power is, is really twofold. Number one, is you get to vote for more than one candidate. How many times do you go to the poll and you see three or four candidates? And in your mind, like, yeah, there are probably a couple who are okay, maybe one who's better than the others. But you kind of want to make sure that, that your vote really counts. And I think what ranked choice voting does is it gives you that opportunity to say, okay, this is my favorite candidate. But I find these other candidates acceptable. And then these other candidates I find less acceptable or unacceptable. So I don't have to pick them. But this way I get to put my the power of my vote for someone who is at least acceptable. And that's actually one of the major notions of democracy, right? That we, we don't necessarily get exactly what we want. But we get something that we think is acceptable. And that's what ranked choice voting does for us. I have a question about technology because ranked choice voting, in a way, is a technology solution, right, for a civic problem. And you are very, very passionate mm. about technology as a problem-solving tool. And my question here is, what stops us from effectively using technology in government services? I'm going to give you a, a, what might be a surprising answer to this question. Okay. It has very little to do with servers and racks and software 
and systems and vendors. All those things are problems. But it ultimately has to do with culture. That technology change is a cultural change. Think about tech startups and what they do and how they build things. They start from the users and the user's needs and work backwards from that. Think about government trying to do that same thing. Think about what that does to established ways of having expertise, of ways of doing things, of systems that have already been invested in and designed, of the sort of the top-down historical nature of government. You know, technology provides so much convenience to our lives, everything from, you know, delivery apps to restaurant apps to, you know, Amazon, social media. All these things were built from the user back to the company. And that is a profound difference. You think of what government would have to do. Government would have to start to actually engage with people, have to figure out what people need instead of thinking about what government needs. So I'll give you one very clear example. City of New York has a tax return for every resident. So since it knows what people make, why doesn't it automate the calculation of benefits for everything, from food stamps to housing vouchers to medical assistance to language assistance. There is no real reason except that it just isn't done that way. So people, especially who are poor, run around from agency to agency spending tremendous amounts of time, wasting tremendous amounts of time, and then often giving up and collecting their benefits. It would reduce so much friction if people could just get the benefits they need so they could go on and move on with their lives and and do the things that they need to do to have, you know, better lives with greater convenience. Yeah, for sure. That's true. I think the idea is that, I think there are several ideas here why it's inconvenient in this way. One is that, you know, there are people already in place who have these jobs who uh, determine whether you qualify or not. And so then if you made it convenient in this way, that person loses his or her job. That's one. And then to your point, People give up and then they don't collect those benefits, right? And so that's, an, that's another goal, I think, in some ways. Like you said, sometimes the government is working against you, which is totally uh, perverse. I mean, because the government is us or, you know, or it should be in any case. It should be. Yes. Right. But we don't think about it necessarily that way. Right. As in the tax return example, so much of this comes down to fundamental data and what you actually do with it. So we know that people live in housing. We know that certain people are a threat of eviction. We could map that. We could use those numbers to start planning for homelessness because what is homelessness? It's not having a place to live. But, you know, that distinction is actually not made. We think about homeless as if, like, all of a sudden they've changed the category of person they are. They're still a person. They just happen not to have a home. And so when you look at the, how we use data from things like affordable housing to public housing or, or Section 8 housing, and we look at people who are subject to eviction notices and, and potential eviction for any particular reason, 
And then we can start to map the flow of things that lead to homelessness, which then contribute to mental health issues and substance abuse issues. We know that if a student is homeless for one year, it cuts their chance of graduating from high school in half. And so there are these longer-term benefits from being able to manage this situation. And it all comes down to the data and having the data be able to go from place to place to place to place. It's another way in which our government has the information, but it's not connecting the dots. Yeah, that's so depressing when you put it like that. But so what are the biggest problems that you wish you could get to work on solving? Well, number one, the eviction crisis. Every solution that we have pursued over the, since the beginning of the pandemic has been kicking the can down the road. And kicking the can down the road on the backs of tenants who are accumulating debt and on the backs of landlords who are not receiving that money. There are many landlords who are large and well-financed, and you know I don't feel terrible for them. But there are so many landlords who are immigrants who are using rental property as a way to invest and build their own American dream. And this is taken away from them. We don't talk about the retirees who rent out a unit in their home, who use the income from that unit to pay for their property taxes and their mortgage, who are at risk of foreclosure. And when it comes down to it, what frustrates me is that when we deliver government aid to tenants to pay their rent, they're paying the landlords. But the tenants still have this financial liability. They have ruined credit. They have all this debt that they're never going to repay. So there has to be a system that actually looks at the fun underlying fundamentals of the financial structure and has to create a way to give relief to tenants and to landlords by wiping out that obligation, to wipe out the property tax obligation for landlords, to be able to use the mechanics of the financial services system to be able to address this problem. And right now, no one is doing this. So we are right now, evictions are back to where they were before pandemic. It is going to get far worse, depending upon whose numbers you listen to. It's 500,000 people, a million people at risk of being evicted. We have billions of dollars of accrued debt. What's going to happen to the people who have this debt? They're going to go bankrupt. So you take people who are already poor and can't sustain this, like you've just relegated them to dire poverty where they owe money on a continuous basis to banks. Because we've also, by the way, over time, we have made bankruptcy laws much tighter. How do we actually eliminate this debt and enable them to be able to recover their credit rating and be able to move on? I want to work on creating structural changes that provide equity and justice to underserved people. And to do that, you know, it means that I'm going to have to find a place where I can make change happen. Or, even better yet, work with someone who is set forth the mission of creating change and brings me in to be a change agent. Well, you're already a change agent just by virtue of having run and all the things that you've done. So this show, as you know, is about building your civic action toolkit. So help our listeners with what they could be doing. You know, not everybody is going to run for office. What we really like to do is sort of point out to people what they can do between voting 
and short of running for office. So what are two things an everyday person could be doing right now? To make a difference, you have to decide to join and belong. Joining and belonging are two sides of the same coin. By joining, you can't have a sense of belonging. It's not necessary that it happens. But people who are parts of communities join. It's an active effort whether it's a religious institution or a mutual aid society or your block association or a community board, regardless of the shortcomings of any of those, joining and volunteering is key to being able to make New York a better place. And when you do that, you're going to strengthen your community and you're going to strengthen your feeling about your obligation to your neighbors and to others. At the heart of it, that's what keeps us all together. Yeah, that's right. So looking into the future, what makes you hopeful? A couple things. Young people make me hopeful. I think there is immense vitality and passion and um, unwillingness to accept the status quo by younger folks, especially millennials and, and Zoomers. I'm so inspired by how they've taken up things like the climate crisis and housing justice and, and other issues to really push forward. You know, we have a city council that is majority female for the first time. Right? People of color. Right? We have, you know, a queer South Indian. We have, you know, a queer half Asian, you know, Blasian on the council. These are the things, these, not just symbols, but also this deep understanding that this represents of our communities and the most vulnerable in them, that's really going to change our world. So that, that's one thing that gives me a lot of hope. The second thing is that despite all of the um, inertia in government, there are so many efforts to improve how government works through technology. And they're happening in small ways, they're happening in big ways, They're happening all over the country. It's taking far longer, and it's not as well accepted as I would like it to be. But there are so many promising signs out there of, of how technology is advancing in a city government setting, in a, in a state government setting, and even in the federal government. So that gives me hope. And uh, while it may be slow, I'm going to keep exercising my sense of impatience to try to make it go faster, because we need more of it. Well, thank you very much for joining us and sharing your thoughts. Art Chang is a citizen changemaker, a true innovator, and mayoral candidate in the 21 election. Thank you so much. It's a delight being here. Next time on Future Hindsight. This is how we get the United States on the better track. We can have a highly functioning government with competitive elections and politicians who know how to work together and solve problems. It could be the way we get to making government work so we can be all we can be. That's Nathan Lockwood from Rank the Vote. He argues that changing how we vote could have huge benefits for our democracy. We're talking about the potential of rank choice voting. Next time on Future Hindsight. Make sure you subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss a thing. And while you're there, leave us a review. It's a great way to support the show and help folks find the podcast. This episode was produced by Zach Travis and Sarah Burningham. Until next time, stay engaged. 
This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.